Right, so First Peter chapter 2, continuing to go through the book of First Peter, I just want to remind everybody of the importance of understanding the context, understanding the audience, understanding the history. We talked about all these things last week when we went through chapter 1. Uh, if you ignore these things, you're going to end up finding yourself, especially when we get into the next couple chapters, uh, seeing some difficult scriptures that people often get confused with, and a lot of it can be cleared up if we understand context, the audience, all of those things matter. And we really do a big disservice to the scriptures when we just kind of forget all that stuff and just kind of isolate the scriptures. Um, it, it's not, it's not going to work. And so uh, we're going to see more examples as we go through this chapter showing that this is Peter writing to saved and uh, saved Israelites. I don't want to call them Jews. I want to call them saved Israelites. And you'll see why I say that here in just a little bit. But remember, we ended last week with chapter 2 where he reminds them that they are born again, not of corruptible seed, which is uh, what they were from, what their fathers were. The, the Jews, like anyone else, were corruptible man. And proof that Jews are just as corruptible as any Gentile is that they eventually die too. They eventually die too. You know why? Because they have not put on incorruption. So the only way you put on incorruption, Peter makes it clear, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. And we are born again by the word of God, not our genetics, not our ancestry. We are born again by the word of God. So having explained this to them, so they know that all flesh is as grass, you know, he goes on to say in verse 2, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, the people that Peter is speaking to had a history of being lifted up with pride because of their own pedigree and being very down on others because of theirs. We saw that throughout Jesus' ministry. This is something that they did. Jesus called out these things while he was on earth. And Peter afterwards here, he is reminding them that they are children of God through the new birth by the incorruptible seed rather than the corruptible seed of their father. So he tells them, since you understand that, you know what? It's, we should lay aside the hypocrisy. Because what it was that Jesus constantly called the Pharisees? Hypocrites. It was so hypocritical of them to be down on other people when they were sinful too, just like everybody else. In fact, many times they were even worse than them. And so the thing is to see yourself as better than another group because of where you descend from. I mean, that is just the ultimate hypocrisy. It's absolutely ridiculous. And so for a Christian, especially to have an attitude like that, that should be an absolutely foreign thought. But this is something that Peter definitely would have had to uh, probably remind these people of who had a history who came from a long line of people who thought they were better than everybody else. So he's telling them to lay aside those things. Put those things aside. We don't do that as Christians. And then he says in verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. So if they can actually lay aside these things, they can get to where they need to be spiritually. And that is with the mentality of a newborn baby desiring milk. Because, you know, their pride probably told them that they knew a lot. Because, obviously, if you were raised, you know, an Israelite, you were probably taught the Old Testament. But remember, the, those Israelites or the Jews, uh, before Christ saved them, they read the Bible with a veil over their heart. And so, like we talked about, I think it was Sunday we were talking about this, you know, they had the ability to gain knowledge they probably could have told you who all the kings of Israel were in order. They probably could have told you how long they all reigned. They knew a bunch of facts about the Bible, but you know what? They didn't understand the spiritual message. So the thing is, when they got saved, when they received the Holy Spirit, it was probably like reading a whole new book to them. Because while they know all these facts, while they know about all these characters, now they're getting all these spiritual truths, things that they never understood before, and... And, that, and that's the case with anyone who gets saved. Okay? With anybody who gets saved, a lot of people you know, were religious. They knew a lot of stuff about the Bible. But when you get the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, 
he opens up new things and you're going to start understanding all kinds of stuff that you never understood before. Okay. You got some people that act like you can't understand any Bible unless you're saved because the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. Well, that's right. Natural man can't receive spiritual things, but you can still receive the facts. You can still receive, you know, there are some things that anybody can get. You know, you can still understand love thy neighbor. You know, you can still understand thou shalt not kill. It's those spiritual things that you can't get. So we're always doing good when you teach anybody the Bible, but there's going to be some things they're never going to get until they actually get the Holy Spirit. So, uh, and when they, and when, so when you get that, when you actually get the spiritual stuff, that's where the real value is at. That's where the real treasure is at. And, and so the, these people, they needed to have that mentality, and I believe they probably did. Uh, but a lot of people aren't like that. A lot of people, they do, they get lifted up with pride. A lot of people, too, often, you know, they find it offensive when you'll have, you know, you'll go out soul and you'll have teenagers out there. And you got this person, you know, I've been going to this church for 50 years. And they're like, oh, well, if you die, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? And they get offended by, like, teenagers trying to tell them. I mean, it's like, didn't you hear me? I've been going to that church for 50 years. I've been going to that church three times longer than you've even been alive. You know, there's nothing you can teach me. Boy, and that's the attitude of a lot of religious people. And they've got, they've got to get past that. And you know what? I'll bet they know a few things going to a church for 50 years. But if they're not saved, they're missing everything that's important absolutely everything that's important so verse 3 says if so be ye have tasted that the lord is gracious so they will be able to have this mentality of that newborn baby if they get a hold of the fact that the lord was gracious in saving them they didn't deserve it some people act like their their coming to christ was a good deal for god i mean i've heard the preachers get up there and at you know they tell their testimony like it was the most victorious day that God ever had when, you know, they finally surrendered and gave their life to him. It's like, you know, that was, you know, that was a great day for you for sure. And God's always thankful when people get saved. But good night, you know, if you see yourself as like a prize or like a trophy of God's, I think you're missing a few things about salvation. Uh, I think we've got some theology we need to study. I'm starting to wonder if you're getting some of those spiritual truths, if you think that. And, and there's not too many people like that, but they pop up at camp meetings and things if you ever want to go to them. Uh, and they like to tell their dramatic stories and get the crowd going. But verse 4 says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Now, I really want to spend some time on this concept here because this is important we understand this. All right? I don't know if we have any robot theologians in here. Okay? And you know, I, I use that term, everyone, robot theologian. And a robot theologian, that's a person, they, you know, they're capable of learning a fact, but because they're just a robot, they don't always know how to apply it. And sometimes the Bible says things one way in one passage. It might say things another way in another passage. And then Mr. Robot Theologian that has no spiritual discernment, it's like does not compute, does not compute, and their brain explodes. And then they think the Bible's got contradictions, and then it's just like, I, I don't believe in God anymore. Okay, that, That's that robot theologian, right? And I want to try to uh, give you some help, and I'm going to try to program a little something into you, give you a little more information so you're, you know, you're not short-circuiting uh, you know, when you hear preaching on, on certain things. And I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But notice again that verse talking about Jesus Christ refers to him as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. The stone, Jesus Christ, the rock, Jesus Christ was a stone that was rejected by men. It was a stone that Israel did not want. But this stone was chosen of God to be the most important stone or the chief cornerstone, the most important one, that was Jesus Christ. So the most important stone in this spiritual building that God is building is Jesus Christ. Now, does anybody believe in here today believe that Jesus Christ is a literal stone? I mean, do we really do we do we really believe that? Uh, how many is looking forward to seeing that building and what it looks like, and then going and 
meeting Jesus and finding the right stone in that building that's Him. Is, is that what we think? Okay, I, I hope you're not, I hope you're not going to be looking for that. You haven't been looking forward to that because I don't believe that. I don't believe we're going to see this a physical building in heaven with Jesus Christ standing there kind of holding everything up as the chief cornerstone. Okay, I, I don't believe that. Look what it says in Romans 9.30. And I'm, I'm being ridiculous because there's some ridiculous teaching out there because, again, robot theologians who don't know how to take spiritual things and just or things that are figurative and just take them for how you're, how you're supposed to take them. But Romans 9.30 says, What should we say then? That the Gentiles which follow not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now, we're going to probably look at this passage again next week and see something very important there, but I want to focus on that part where it says that the Gentiles, they weren't seeking after righteousness. They weren't even looking for it. Okay? They were dead in their trespasses and sins. But you had Israel who was, there were people there who were working for their righteousness, but they never got righteousness. You know why? Because they thought they could obtain righteousness through the works of the law, and they didn't seek it by faith. While the Gentiles, who weren't even looking, when the gospel was preached to them, all of a sudden, they believed it, and they attained righteousness through faith. But the reason that the Jews did not accept that was because they rejected Jesus Christ. He was a rock of offense to them and they stumbled. And you know what? It was prophesied that they would do that. And that's why in verse 33, Paul says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now let me ask you, this stumbling stone, this rock of offense, it's Jesus Christ, correct? All right, were there any Jews that literally tripped over that stone? Or is this figurative again? It's figurative, right? Okay, we all understand this. Isaiah 28.16 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. So, the Jews as a whole, they stumbled at that rock but these ones that Peter's writing to, they are a part of that remnant like Paul talked about in Romans chapter 11. These ones, these Israelites, when they heard the gospel, they accepted it, they received it, they were saved, and because they got saved, watch this. He says, ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So again, so now notice how these people, that, these individuals that Peter is writing to, he tells them, your, your stones. He says, your lively stones. And God is building a spiritual house with you, unlike the house that was made with hands that was in Jerusalem, unlike the house that was in Jerusalem at that time that was going to be destroyed that was going to be burnt down, where there wasn't going to be one stone left upon another, where there was not going to be sacrifices anymore, where there wasn't going to be an earthly priesthood anymore. Peter says, God is using you to build up a spiritual house and your stones in that. And also with you, God is making an holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So the truth is, we still have priesthood today, but you know what we call it today? It's a Baptist distinctive, the priesthood of the believer. We do not have a Levitical priest, but we do have, we are priests and we offer up spiritual sacrifices, not physical sacrifices, not lamb sacrifices and goat sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices and those sacrifices that we offer are made acceptable by the high priest, Jesus Christ. So, this is some, all these things that Peter is telling these people are going to mean something to them since they come from a world where priests were everything. 
where a high priest was everything. Just like we see in Hebrews, how he spent a lot of time showing how Jesus replaced uh, the priesthood of of the Levites and he replaced the sacrifices and all these things. And so Peter tells these people here that they are stones that God is using to build up that house. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 16 because this is where the robot theologians like to lose their mind and don't know what to do. Because we have Old Testament verse passages where it calls Jesus the rock. Okay? And so, therefore, if the Old Testament says the Lord is the rock, no one else can be a rock ever. Well, I don't know where that rule came from. Because, you know, when we use that term rock too, it's used in many different ways. Okay? You know, you'll, you'll hear people say sometimes, you know, like, you know, a wife might say, you know, my husband, he's just the rock of our family. Jesus should be the rock of your family. They're, you, know, you know what they're just saying? He's the strong one. He's the one that's keeping us all together. Okay? Well, Jesus should be doing that. And, and listen, we all, we all know that. Right? We all get that. Okay? And, and obviously, spiritually, He does. But you know what? I think it's a good thing that you know, if we're going to um, declare somebody the you know, physical strength of the home, it probably should be the man, shouldn't it? And so if you use the illustration, if you use the term rock, it's not really a big deal. Okay? It, it doesn't have one exclusive use. It can be used in many different ways. And so in Matthew 16, 16, this is where and Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And people get really mad when you say that he's talking about Peter right there, because that's what the Catholics say, and that's why he's the first pope. Well, I don't see where that makes him the first pope. I just see that Jesus is just showing that Peter is foundational in the church, in, in the starting of his church, in the building of his church. And was Peter not foundational in the starting of the church? He preached a pretty important message, didn't he, on Pentecost? I mean, he wrote part of our Bible. He was one of the twelve apostles. I mean, if, if you know, Peter was a, a definitely even a leader amongst the disciples. I mean, Jesus after his resurrection, you know, he told Peter, you know, to strengthen his brethren. Peter was a rock. Peter was a rock that God would, Jesus Christ would build his church on. And us acknowledging that is not taking anything away from Jesus Christ. Peter is a rock, but you know what? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Okay? So understand this. I believe everybody that's saved and that's a part of God's church, you could say, is a stone in that building or a rock in that building. Okay? So for the robot theologians out there, just program it in this way, okay? You know, a bunch of people can be rocks, but only Jesus' chief cornerstone, okay? Now, if I was saying Peter's the chief cornerstone, you know, that is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. But it does refer to him as a rock. It's the same, and I think Peter understood that. And I think Peter understood what Jesus meant. And because Peter understood what Jesus meant... He was able to tell these people that he had preached to, that he had gotten saved, to say, you know what? You all are stones in this building too. You're a part of the spiritual building. And this is exactly what Paul taught in Ephesians 2.19. It says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I thought the church, you know, don't we sing a song, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord? I mean, isn't that what the song says? And is it wrong to say that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church? Obviously not. That just means He's the most important thing. Okay? And there's different ways we could put that. There's different ways that we can use that. And here He's saying that the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Well, that seems kind of blasphemous. No, because then look what He says. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So as long as we acknowledge Jesus Christ is the most important part, you know, then we're okay. Whatever illustration is being used, 
And so when we see Peter talking about a building, when we see Jesus talking about a rock, when we see Paul talking about the foundation, all these things, they're figurative. Okay? They're figurative. And so it's not out of line to say that Peter is a rock. Okay? Just don't refer to him as the rock like the most important thing. Okay? Or the chief cornerstone. No. That's Jesus. Okay? But Peter was a part... And I believe that we are a part too. I believe you could say that I'm a rock that the church is built built on. Or, uh, you know, and if that sounds a little too arrogant, I'll just say I'm just a lively stone. Yeah, I'm just a lively stone, and that's what all of us are out there. So don't freak out when you hear people teach that. Uh, I think that's you know that's right. I th- um, I don't know. It's my opinion from my observation what I've learned. I think that whole idea of the interpretation that requires you to use hand gestures. All right, which is, oh, this is what it means. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That was what Jesus said. Now, that's the way everybody preaches it. Now, I don't know where they found those hand gestures in the Bible, because I'm not, I'm not seeing it with the words. But here's where that came from. Where I, that Chick Publications. All right, Chick Publications really popularized that with the Alberto series and things like that because that's what Alberto uh, understood to uh, help him realize that, you know, the Catholic Church was wrong and, you know, salvation was by faith. And, you know, he, you know, and no, all right, you know, I, and I don't know that much about Alberto and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, if you came to faith, great. I still think you got that verse wrong. Okay, but... Uh, anyway, you know, and it is, it's, it's one of those things people, they do, they get real freaked out if you do Peter there because the Catholics, you know, and sometimes the Catholics say things are right, but then they add things to it. So they'll say Peter, you know, he, Jesus was talking about Peter right there, but then they just go to this massive leap and say, that means he was the first Pope. No, I, we don't see anything like that at all. So verse six, wherefore it is contained in the scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So again, all of us are rocks, but Jesus is chief. And without him, the whole building falls. He is preeminent. Okay? And so I think with the exception of the Catholics, probably 99% of people who view Peter as a rock have a proper understanding of that. But I would say... Uh, you know, and I would say 100%, but there's always the YouTube theologian out there that they all that comes up with something really weird. There's all, I'm, I'm convinced half these YouTube theologians teach the weird doctrines that they do just as a way to set their channel apart to try to get a following. It's like there's no way you really believe some of this stuff, but they're, they're always out there. Um, but so, you know, and, and don't try to tell me too, well, there's a difference between a rock and a stone. Okay, don't, don't try to tell me that. You know, Jesus said on this rock, here Peter's saying stones. And that's different. No, please don't tell me that. If you do, I'm going to throw a stone through your window. And when you try to tell the police and they ask if I threw a stone through, I'm going to say, no, it was a rock. You know, they, they lied. You know, it's, sorry. Uh, you know, is there a difference between getting stoned and rocked to death? I mean, I don't know. But, in, in, you know, if, if I tried using that kind of argument in a courtroom, I'd probably get laughed out, wouldn't I? It's like, Your Honor, I did not throw a stone through that person's window. It was a rock. I get laughed out, but yet theologically, you know, you'll have Ruckmanites that will try to make a difference. So if you rightly divide, you'll understand, you know, there's a difference. No, same thing, okay? Same thing. So First Peter uh, 2, 7, verse 7, Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. Okay? People who are believers, all right? Uh, Israelites who are believers, they recognize Jesus for who He is. He's precious to them. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made head of the corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You know what's interesting about Jesus Christ? When you think about Him being rejected, by his own people. You know what it is? We see There's pictures of that we can see in the Bible. Can anybody think of an individual in the Bible who's a great picture of Jesus Christ because of the fact that he was rejected yet became chief? 
Joseph. Rejected by his brethren. Despised. Hated by his brethren. Cast out by his brethren. But you know what? Joseph ended up becoming ruler over all of his brethren. He became chief over all of them. And you know what? That's kind of a picture of what we see with Jesus Christ. He was rejected uh, by his brethren, yet he's still merciful to them. And even though as a whole they rejected him, we see even here that Jesus Christ was still saving them. We still see them being saved. We have the Apostle Paul, like, man, God hasn't cast away his people. He's like, I'm an Israelite. He's, and yet, I'm saved. And so just like Joseph was forgiving and, and merciful to his brothers, Jesus Christ is the same way. There's a lot of comparisons that you can make there. But notice too in verse 8 where it says how they stumbled at the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, and it mentions whereunto they were appointed. Okay? They were appointed this destruction. They were appointed uh, this rejection. This was something that God always saw coming. Proof of it is the story of Joseph. Where God is basically telling the story of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ way back in the book of Genesis because God always, He's always known what was coming. These things were not a coincidence. God put all those things in there on purpose. Think about it. God spent one chapter talking about creation. One, about how everything came to be. He took several chapters talking about how Joseph's brothers rejected him and how, you know, just that story of Joseph that is a great picture of what Jesus Christ did. Why did he do that? So, the Jews would read these stories and see the error of their ways. They were supposed to learn from their mistakes. Don't do like your fathers did when they cast out their brother. Don't you do that to Jesus Christ. And I don't want to get into all the examples there, but there's, there's a lot we could. Matthew 21, verse 41. Notice what it says there. They say unto Him, this is after Jesus gives that parable uh, of the you know, man who uh, you know, left the vineyard to his servants, and they say unto Him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken, taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. So there's that Scripture being mentioned again. It was, all, it was always, it was, it was foreordained that as a whole, they were going to reject the Messiah. And that is why Paul, in Romans chapter 9, when he begins talking about Israel's salvation, he talked about that sorrow and that heaviness in his heart for his brethren. He wanted them to be saved as a physical nation. But you know what he said? I, I, who am I to speak against the potter? He's the one that formed them. And you know what he said God raised them up for? Just like God raised up Pharaoh for destruction, God has raised them up for destruction and they were the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. They're not coming back. They're not going to, there's, they're not going to have this national salvation in the future. No, they have been appointed for destruction. But thank God for the remnant. Thank God for the remnant. And that's who Peter's talking to. Right here, he's talking to that remnant. And so in verse 9, back to 1 Peter 2, he says, after he calls them, refers to them as lively stones that have accepted the chief cornerstone, he says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what's interesting, this is very close to what we see in Exodus 19, verse 6, where it says, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So again, this showing the replacement of the old covenant to the new covenant. Peter is telling these you know, Israelites from all the tribes, Probably none of them from Levi. I'll give, I'll give you my opinion on that in a little bit. There could have been, but just, just kind of my opinion there. But um, in the, under the Old Covenant, you had to be a Levite to be a priest. But it was God's will to make a kingdom of priests. 
and he referred to them as um, an holy nation. But you know what? Israel was not able to be that holy nation, to be that peculiar people under the law. They were not capable of it. But here we have these Israelites, you know, hundreds of years later, that have been scattered all over these different parts of the world. They achieved it. Now, how did they achieve it? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus did it for them. And Peter's already acknowledged these things. So now, they're actually able to claim what the Old Testament Israel was never able to claim because they, they couldn't achieve it. They, they messed it up. And so, thank, you know, thank God for that. And, and we are definitely included in that. And that's the thing, too. While we recognize the fact that this is written to you know, Israelites, first century Israelites, every bit of this applies to us, folks. Every bit of this applies to us uh, and it is it is not wrong for a preacher to take anything from first and second Peter that he's trying to teach this church and apply it because we got we got in the same way that Israelites did. And now that's something the Israelites struggled with because they again they thought they were special. Peter's showing them here, yeah, you're special because of Jesus Christ. Not but not because of your corruptible seed that you came from. So um Verse, uh, yeah, verse 10, okay? So verse 10, so Israel, they failed to achieve this by the law. They did achieve it through faith in Christ. They saw the chief cornerstone as precious and obtained what the rest of Israel lost. So verse 10, which in time past were not a people. Now this is one right here is why I used to think that this was one of the reasons I thought this was written to Gentiles believers because look at this which in time past were not a people but now are the people of god which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy so wait a minute the israelites were a people okay it's very important when they're quoting or referencing old testament it's always important we go back and look now i don't have time to preach all of hosea 1 Uh, i think if you guys read hosea 1 y'all know enough you'd probably be able to figure most of it out but let me just kind of Hit, hit a couple things, all right? In Hosea 1.9, says, Then said God, call his name Loamai, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. This prophecy that Hosea was giving towards Israel, this was when the kingdom was split. And remember, he went and he got the wife that was a harlot and he had the two children and you have one that represents the southern kingdom. You have one that represents the northern kingdom. This prophecy of Hosea is mainly focused on the northern kingdom. And when he is given this part here, this child represents the northern kingdom. And it was the northern kingdom that was told, you are not going to be a people anymore. And it was, that was the northern kingdom. And then the northern kingdom, they got taken captive many years before the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken captive. And in that southern kingdom, you just had Judah, Benjamin, and the Levites. Okay? Now, later they got taken captive, but they got brought back. And that's when we start seeing them being referred to as Jews. This was long after the kingdoms had split. And being a Jew, it mainly meant you were, it didn't mean necessarily you were an Israelite or of any of the 12 tribes. It meant you were a part of that southern kingdom. Well, that northern kingdom, it remained spread out till the days of Christ. And, you know, and there was, you know, there was exceptions of people that came back. There was, you know, a little bit here and there. But then you have during Jesus' day, you know, in Galilee, which was part of the northern kingdom, that's where you had a lot of Gentiles, and that's also where you had a lot of Samaritans, which were a mixture. And I don't have time to go into all this. It, it requires a lot of time, but I've preached a lot of messages on before, showing how Ephraim, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, like Judah was capital of the southern kingdom, represents the Gentiles. Okay? Ephraim represents the Gentiles. I've preached a lot on that. If anybody has any questions on that, I could refer you back to some of the message I've done. On that, but during this time, this is why historical context is important. During that first century, you had the Jews, you know, that southern kingdom that was still there in Israel, 
in Jerusalem, but you still had many Israelites, you know, remnants from that northern kingdom that were spread out all over the world. And so there was all these prophecies about those two kingdoms becoming one again and all that stuff. And so when the you know Jesus Christ came and when the gospel started going out, what did the disciples want to do? They wanted to go reach all those other tribes. They wanted to go reach all those other Israelites that were out there and kind of make them a part of that, that kingdom again. And so, um, you know, understand that it was specifically the northern kingdom, you know, the, the, which was a vast majority of the tribes that was told, you are not my, you are not a people. But, you will be called the people of God. And so that right here is what Peter's referring to because that's how they got in. Now, here's the thing about that too. So I, I probably need to preach just a whole message just on this concept. It's, it's a deep concept, but it's very sound biblically and can, and can easily be proven. This is all, it also does apply to Gentiles too. Okay. This is how we got in on it. And again, because Ephraim represents the Gentiles. So um, I say all that to just show that what we're seeing here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is not evidence that he's speaking to Gentiles. No, this is Peter who's going after those lost tribes that were all over. And he's reminding them of a prophecy that was given to them that they would be a people again. And so these tribes became a people again. So they're not really Jews because they're not of the southern kingdom. But they were Israelites and they were a group who God specifically said, you are not a people anymore. But now because these ones have gotten saved, you know, it's being said, you're the people of God and their numbers is the sand of the sea. And that number is still growing to, to this day. So hopefully you all you'll get all that. I, I kind of just had to touch on it. That is a, it is a deep thing. But first uh, Peter two uh, ten uh, is evidence of that. And so it's very important that you understand that Hosea prophecy. So, uh, now that we've covered the significance and theology of everything that's been said so far, you know, what we're seeing now, kind of in the rest of this chapter, is Peter give, giving them instruction on how to live in a world where they're just not in charge and in a society that does not honor the law of God because they're outsiders. Okay? They're, they're outsiders. They're in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There are, all, there are all these different nations that don't follow the laws of God, don't care about the things of God. And so he's just giving them instruction. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Hey folks, our world, our culture that is, we are surrounded by is always going to be obsessed and just filled with things that are contrary to what we should do. We've got too many Christians today trying to figure out how we can fit in with the culture more. And here's the problem. It's real easy for us to fit in with that culture because we have a carnal nature. But we're not supposed to be that way. We're supposed to be spiritual. And, and folks, this is going to be important next week. I, I, I've got so much I've got to, I want to try to cover in the next two weeks that uh, uh, some pretty heavy stuff. But... Um, you know, the, the ways of God and the ways of the world, the, the customs are, uh, you know, you know, just, you know, how we live our life are supposed to be vastly different. And churches have just gotten so lame, so liberal. We're losing sight of that. And it's causing us to get really confused on some passages in the Bible because we are so much like our culture. And I'm not asking us to go, you know, live on a compound and dress up like Amish people or something like that, but We've got, we've got to learn to identify fleshly lusts at war against the soul. Okay? Now, the trendies will tell us we're legalists if we get specific on that. But folks, do we have to have every fleshly lust that war against the soul spelled out in the Bible? Are we not allowed to recognize if something is a fleshly lust and it's warring against people's soul? Are we not allowed to identify that thing and call it out? I think we can do that. Just because the Bible doesn't get specific on it doesn't mean we avoid it. So, uh, verse 12 says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. So it is our job to have a good testimony and not necessarily to force our ways on the world. Obviously, we want to preach righteousness. Obviously, you know, we want to let people know, you know, hey, yeah, you shouldn't do this stuff, but we're not forcing them either, are we? I mean, are we literally showing up at people's houses and breaking up shack up couples and things like that? No, but we do speak the truth about those things. And then we, and then we try to make sure we don't do that stuff. Because these are really bad things, but we ultimately, we want to be a light. We want to glorify God. And so uh, it says in verse 13, because we want to have a good testimony, and I don't like this passage, but it's Bible, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Okay, now let me just help you out here real quick. And you all know this. But we should always submit to God-ordained authority when they are doing what God ordained them to do. Now, if they want to declare some new authority that God never ordained, we don't have to listen to that. Okay, I am an ordained minister of the gospel. Ordained. All right? But now, do I get to add authority to that? And then, wouldn't it be wrong if I did? I just got him. I said, as the ordained man of God in the building, I declare myself head over your household. Be expecting a visit the next week. I'm going to be going through, seeing uh, what I what y'all need to get rid of. And if you all go against me, you're going against a God-ordained man you are violating the verse in the Bible, you know, that talks about submitting unto the elder, all that kind of stuff. Wrong. I've not been ordained that authority. Okay, so understand when you have clowns, novice clowns preaching that we're supposed to follow tyrants doing things that God never ordained doing things that are illegal even according to our own laws. They violate our own constitution. You know what? When those uh, you know, novice clowns tell you you have to listen to those people, you can laugh at them. You don't have to listen to that. We listen to God-ordained authority when they are exercising in their authority that God ordained. But an ordained individual like myself does not get to ordain more authority for myself. That, that's absolutely ridiculous. And so I shouldn't even need to preach something like that, but it's 2022 and it's COVID season and we got a lot of people rolling over for the government because they're scared or whatever, but uh, that, that, that's too bad. The Bible still means what it says and says what it means. So verse 15, for so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Okay, now why? Okay, who would, who would be accused of anything? Well, remember Daniel? Remember how you had people that were trying to get the king to make a law just to go after him? Why? Because they wanted to prove that he was some kind of rebel. They wanted to prove that he was against the kingdom. But you know what? That king, you know, had he not been conned into signing that law, if they would have just, you know, tried accusing him at first, he'd have laughed at him because Daniel was a great man who did the things he was supposed to do. And he did it without violating the law of God. So there's always going to be people that want to just try to set us up and things like that. Um, you know, and, and those are foolish men. So you know what we need to do? We need to follow the authorities where they have authority. And we need to be submissive. And then that way we can shut these people up. And you know what? I'm glad because I get accused of all kinds of stuff on the internet by all the haters and stuff. I mean, I get accused of all kinds of stuff. I keep getting, the, I get these notifications all the time for these different things saying that I've been cert, you know, where you like can look at people's background checks and stuff. People are apparently checking me all the time. What are they doing? Looking for dirt because they don't like what I say. Now, even if I did have all kinds of dirt in my background, what I'm preaching is still true. But wouldn't it hurt the cause if they were finding all kinds of stuff? It, it would it would be really bad, and that's why we want to do everything we can to have a good testimony. And so that's why uh, one of the reasons I obey the laws, and one of the reasons I obey the laws, I just don't want to deal with the government. I hate court, I hate judges. I'm thankful for police, but I don't want to have anything to do with them. 
You know, I don't want them. I don't want them messing with me. Uh, you know, I, I shouldn't need them. And let me tell you, one of the th- you know, I, I've only ever had to go in a courtroom, and it was just for a weird real estate thing, for one time in my life, and I felt so violated. I hated it so much. I, I just, I don't want to. Do it. I do whatever I can to avoid that kind of stuff because it is. It's I don't trust our court system. I think there's a lot of wicked in there. I get, I get it. Sometimes people have to. But I do whatever I can to avoid it. And so I follow the laws too, even ones I don't like. And so verse 16 says, As free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as servants of God. So we should not need people telling us what to do. Okay, And he said, and if police, judges, all those things, if they're a regular part of your life, you're probably living life wrong. I, I, I hope police aren't regularly visiting your house. I remember when we were in the old building, there was police. They were always stopping at this one house right by there. And I, I thought the worst of them. And then I found out, I guess that police is friends with them. And he stops by all the time. But I thought so many bad things about them because the police was already always there. And so I just thought, you know, so now it's like, if, you know, if I'm friends with the police, I don't want them coming over my house in a police car because I don't want to have a bad, I don't want to have a bad reputation. But honor all men. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And you know what? Let me just throw this in there. It's okay for us to show respect for our nation and for certain customs that don't violate the Bible. You know, you're not proving how spiritual you are and how much you love the Lord by telling me how much you hate America and by not standing, you know, when they're doing the national anthem. You know, we're allowed to do things like that. If you want to stand there, put your hand over your heart, even if you want to sing along, you're not violating anything in the Bible. If you just want to do common courtesy, okay, we don't need to go, you know, disrespecting the American flag. And you know, if I went to another country, I wouldn't disrespect their flag. And, you know, and I would honor their customs. As long as they're not causing me to violate anything in the Bible, it's okay to be respectful. And honoring the king, okay, we don't have, we don't have a king, but it's just a way of honoring the authority. And so we should be respectful. If I met, if I met the president, I wouldn't call him a reprobate. I, I wouldn't, I, I would, because I would have honor for the office, even though I have no respect for the individual. But the office, I do have some respect for. So, you know, don't think I'm just scared or compromising if I ever had a chance to meet the president and you see me being polite. That is exactly what I would do. And it's because of the fact that um, I'm honoring the position and the authority, not necessarily the individual. So verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience towards God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. We should be good employees. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen, you are nothing special. You get no rewards if you're suffering as a result of being evil. I'm tired of seeing people do evil things and then get in trouble because of it and then act like they're being persecuted for Christ. Listen, if you steal and you get busted and you go to jail, you're not suffering for the cause of Christ. If you treat people like garbage, if you lie, if you slander, and then you turn around and you get your hide nailed to the wall because of it, you are not suffering for the cause of Christ. You are suffering as an evildoer. I can pity you. I can feel sorry for you. I can pray for you to get right. I will not admire you. I will not see you as somebody suffering for the cause of Christ. You're suffering because you're a bad person. And that's a lot of suffering, but we're all, we're all martyrs. With any suffering we do. For even here unto we called because Christ also suffered for us. Leaving us an example, you should follow his steps. I hated Jesus too. He suffered too. Not for doing wrong. Okay? That's a big difference right there. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Okay? You sinned, there was guile found in your mouth. You suffered. You're not like Jesus. You're like Jesus when you suffer for doing right. Well, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. He wasn't calling everybody reprobate that said anything bad about him. And then you're, yet you're like Jesus. You're going to get up and talk about all these people that did you wrong and how horrible all of them are. And you're reviling again. 
And then you're like, I'm like Jesus. Jesus didn't revile again. You're nothing like Jesus. Okay? You're, you're like the world. It says, but uh, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And so we should all study the life of Christ and be like him who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed for ye were as sheep going astray but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. How did they get returned? Had they lost their salvation? No, because remember Israel... The Lord was, you know, He was their shepherd, wasn't He? But as a people, they went astray, didn't they? But you know what? They got brought back. They were that prodigal son that returned to the Father. And in Isaiah 53, 5, I believe He's referencing this, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so now, any objections that some might have for this being written to save Jews, it would be because of the fact that everything Peter has covered clearly applies to us too. But that still doesn't change who is written to it. But this actually makes total sense because the thing that Israelites had to get a hold of is that they were sinful just like any other nation. They were just like all those Gentiles. They didn't see themselves as that way. They needed to understand they too were dependent on the mercies of Christ. And so it's not wrong to take this chapter and preach every single one of these principles to 21st century Christians. Not not wrong at all. It's been being done for the last 2,000 years and we're going to keep on doing it because it still applies, it's still relevant today. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter and the amazing uh, teachings, Lord, it's amazing that you even want to use us for anything, but we're thankful that uh, you do and that you've allowed us to to be saved. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to uh, not never get lifted up with pride. Always remember how we got to where we're at and do whatever we can to bring more people to you. In your name we pray. Amen.